Hi, this is Charles Petzold, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today we have episode 289 for September 12th, 2022, and today I will be interviewing a wonderful man named Charles Petzold, and he wrote a book a little over 20 years ago called Code about computers and software and programming, and it became a classic, and it has been on my reading list for a long time, and I finally got around to checking it out and found out that there was a second edition coming out. And after 20 years, uh, Charles was going to update the book. So I reached out to Charles. I found his contact information, reached out and said, hey, I'd love to bring you on the show to talk about, you know, that's kind of the history of computers and, and computing. And he graciously agreed. And so today that has come to fruition and he will be the subject for today's interview. Uh, I'll get back to that in just a minute. Before I do, a couple pre-interview notes. Uh, first of all, iOS 16, that's a big major release for uh, iPads and iPhones from Apple, comes out today, uh, Monday. And it's got some great privacy and security features, which I will be talking about in a future episode. But I would just caution you to wait a little bit. Like when these major releases come out, I usually give it personally, I usually give it about a week. Also, very often, uh, because they, they time this to come out with iPhones. So the new iPhones for the year have been released as well. And they're available for order. They've, they've got to put that iOS 16 on the new iPhone as well. So because of that timing, it kind of gets frozen there until the iPhone comes out. And then once the, once the iPhone comes out, they almost immediately have a, a software update. That's probably the one you want. So anyway, I would wait a little bit uh, before you install 16. Now, obviously, in most cases, I tell you to update right away because most smaller updates are security updates and you want to get those immediately and, and automatically, actually, if, if at all possible. But for these major updates, Apple gives you the choice of when to upgrade. It will probably start prompting you soon. Personally, the way I usually work with that is I, I wait like a week or so, maybe maybe a little less, but just to see if there's any problems with it and also to, to catch that inevitable uh, first update that's probably really the one that you want. Also, after the interview, I've got a little rant about Google that I will get into. They rejected the podcast that I posted last week on YouTube saying I violated their terms of service. And of course, this was an automated thing that really really messed up and it really made me kind of angry. So, but I'll, I'll save that rant till after the interview. So let's get to the interview. First of all, the book is great. It's really a wonderful description of how computers work from really building up from very first principles, including software and how we program computers. This book is, is just phenomenal. And it's, it's a lot of fun to read. If you're interested about computers and history at all, I highly recommend it. So the power to compute things has been around for a really long time. And it started, you know, as mechanical contraptions. But it's really just a bunch of simple building blocks. And the book does a great job of explaining uh, from first principles how these building blocks are created and how they're then put together to create more complicated things. And eventually we come up with computers. And then the technology part, the, the part where we went from mechanical things with springs and pulleys and gears and levers you know, to electromechanical things, to eventually purely electronic things when we had vacuum tubes and then transistors, and the book covers all that stuff. So we're not going to get quite into that much detail today, but we are going to talk about the history of computers and, and computing and programming. And it's, I find it fascinating. Of course, <laughs> it's what I do for a living too, so I am a little bit biased. But he also talks a little bit about codes and encoding and how when we want to transfer information, uh, to, typically across some sort of distance, we find some method, some way of taking our language, either written or verbal, uh, transcoding it into something else, depending on what the medium is that we need to get that information across, and then you know, unencode it, decode it on the other side, and back into you know whatever our natural language is that we're that we put it in the first place. And some of the codes that we came up with early on, of course, is everyone immediately would think of Morse code. But there are other ways that we encode things as well. He talks about Braille in the book. If you're familiar with the Navy at all, they have you know something called semaphores. You know, the, with the flags or the flashing lights. There's all sorts of ways we've come up with to communicate codes. And if you look at the the cover art 
for the book code, the, the big letters C-O-D-E are on, on the front. Now, there's these kind of funky symbols and stuff underneath. It might just, if you didn't give it a close look, you might just think it's, well, it's kind of a patterny, designy thing. But no, it's actually, it's the letters C-O-D-E in three different encodings. One is Morse code, one is Braille, and one is ASCII. So there's a little factoid. You could actually, if you look at the image for today's podcast, you'll see that there and you can check that out yourself. And along those lines, I actually have a little story, a little personal story myself that I'll tell you about, about discovering a code in my life that I didn't realize was there in a kind of a form of steganography. I'll talk about that after the interview. So anyway, that's just a little taste of the kind of stuff that's in the book and what is coming in this interview. So let's not waste any more time. Let's get to my interview with Charles Petzold. Charles Petzold is the author of the books Code, The Annotated Turing, and numerous programming tutorials involving Microsoft Windows. I recently ran across your second edition and had to have it. I was looking to buy it for so long, and I saw there was a second edition, and I thought, you know what? Hey, this would be a great kind of topic to talk about, you know, just what are computers and talk about some of the history. And so I reached out, and you said, you know, let's wait for the book to come out, which we did. And now it's out. The second edition is out. So uh, thank you, Charles, so much for coming on the show. I'm really looking forward to this. Oh, no problem. Glad to be here. So let's let's talk about the book real quick. Why did you write it? Who was your intended audience? And what inspired you to create a second edition after 20-some years? Yeah, this, this the first edition I originally wrote in, in the late 90s. And I was doing a lot of programming. I had friends who were doing a lot of programming. And one of our common complaints was that our parents did not know what we did for a living. <laughs> uh, we would try to explain it, and it just wouldn't, it wouldn't uh. work. And so I thought maybe a book that would explain to our parents what programming is all about. And then eventually I thought, oh, maybe it'll be helpful for uh, journalists who mm. need to write about computers in the business section of newspapers, or maybe even our elected representatives yeah. uh, to get a little feel for what's actually going on inside the, inside the boxes and help them make decisions. It turned out that a big audience for this book were programmers themselves who never really got that that first yeah. instruction into what the machine actually does. Right. Some some programmers jumped right over assembly languages and looked at higher level languages and which is fine although some knowledge of assembly language to me is helpful for high level languages yeah. particularly when you're dealing with things like pointers in C. Right. Uh, People got mystified by pointers, and yet people who knew assembly language and were accustomed to working with that knew exactly what pointers were. Right. So, so that was uh, that turned out to be a big audience. And I've also uh, heard from high school teachers who were running uh, advanced classes in high school for computers uh, for interested students, and uh, they were using this book. So that, that made me happy too. For a book about computers, it had a remarkably long shelf life. I was accustomed to writing books about Windows 2.0 and Windows 3.0 mm. and Windows oh, yeah. 3.1 and Windows 95 and Windows 98. And uh, it was just... <laughs> yeah. Uh, but the book was almost 25 years old. And there were some problems with it. There were some outdated cultural references mm. and... There's a chapter that still exists called Bit by Bit by Bit, where I try to show common places in our, in our common experience where we, where we actually can see mm. bits. Mm -hmm. And I looked at a UPC barcode, decoded that yeah. um, in the chapter, and that was fine. That whole section I was able to bring into the second edition. But I also, one of my examples was blocks on rolls of 35 millimeter photography film that would indicate the ASA rating of the uh, film. So when you yeah. popped it into your camera, they could, <laughs> the camera could automatically yeah. detect the ASA rating. I remember that, that yeah. was That was clearly out of date. <laughs> yes. And there was also another problem with the book that was a problem to me, but apparently it wasn't a problem to a lot of people. I felt that in describing how a computer worked, I had gotten to a certain point and then made a, too big a leap. I, I got to a point where I, I showed how a, you could set up a circuit that would add and subtract a series of numbers using codes in mm -hmm. memory, and then jumped right into 
19, late 70s microprocessors. And I thought that was too big a leap. And I wanted to go a little deeper into uh, the way the uh, an actual CPU worked, which I've done now. And uh, I don't know if it works or not. <laughs> well, I think it's great. You try, to, you try to do this stuff and you don't really know if it works. It's uh, We'll see. The book is fantastic. I love that. I love, that, uh, I love the diagrams. I love that the online diagrams, the animated diagrams online that you've got for this one. That's really cool now too. That was a that was a, a big change from the last edition. Yeah, that's and really I'm, neat. And I'm glad I kind of waited to do that. I, it, that had been to to do some of these interactive circuits online was something that was in the back of my head for a while. And if I had done it earlier, I would have done it in Flash. Mm-hmm. Or I would have done it in Silverlight. Silverlight, yeah. But I'm glad I waited to do it in uh, <laughs> using an HTML5 ca- yeah. canvas in JavaScript. So at least it'll they won't go uh, extinct for a while. <laughs> <I> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I appreciate the the approach of the book too because I came at computer and uh, computer programming myself from an electrical engineering standpoint. So I came from it from right. the hardware, the computer yeah. side. Yeah. And I, I'm glad I had that background. I mean, I know a lot of my fellow programmers came from computer science, which, you know, I, I missed out on some things that they learned, but I picked up a lot of that on the job. And I really liked having the, the, the double E background uh, perspective for, uh, when I came to computers. So why do you think it's important for people to have an understanding of computer fun- fundamentals? Like besides the obvious historical significance, you know, what can these concepts teach us that will help us in our daily lives? Computers are so pervasive at this point that I think that everybody should have a little bit of idea of what's going on inside. I hate for people to regard stuff as magical. Right, yeah. And I think it's interesting, too, that you can, with without getting too far into, into electricity or, or computers or digital logic, you can actually create something that adds numbers. Hmm. And that to me is one of uh, one of the um, breakthrough points of this book that once you get to that point where you can see how how antique telegraph hmm. hardware wired together with light bulbs and switches can add numbers together that's mm-hmm. that's something. Yeah, and we're going to talk a little we'll talk a little bit about some of those building blocks later which I agree is fascinating and I think a lot of people take for granted and it's one of the things of the book that I think is most interesting is the way you draw that out. At a philosophical level, what is a computer? I mean, most people immediately think of laptops and you know, maybe they even realize yeah. that their smartphone is a computer, which it is. But, you know, these are just modern instances of a concept that goes way back. And so at its most basic level, what does it mean for something to be called a computer? In terms of most of the computers that we're using today are are digital computers. They work with numbers and specifically uh, binary numbers. And there is, interestingly, a a very formal definition of a digital computer. And a digital computer is a piece of hardware that carries out operations that are Turing complete. Hmm. And by Turing complete... We are referring to the work of, of the British mathematician Alan Turing. During the 1930s, he wrote a, a seminal paper on computability. And he showed that a, just a very simple number of operations are required to create a machine that can solve any logical or arithmetic problem that a modern computer can, can solve. And that, in that sense, all digital computers are equivalent. Some may be faster than others. Some may have bigger displays and, and fancier keyboards, and some may have touchscreens. But they are all, in terms of computational com- capability, they are all uh, equivalent. And they also have all the same limitations. Um, what Alan Turing really showed was that there is a limitation to this type of computation. And that, in in short, you can't write a program that can determine if another computer program is running correctly, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very sobering thought. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so that's that's a definition of a digital computer, and that encompasses virtually all the computers that we're familiar with today. But it doesn't. It's it's not enough. Prior to digital computers, there were analog computers. One of the, the most important was a machine built by Vannevar Bush and his students at MIT called the Differential Analyzer. And this was a machine. It was, it's, it's 
pulleys and wheels hmm. and, and, and stuff, and it solves differential equations, hmm. which is important for, for physicists hmm. doing problems and electrical engineers and lots of other people. But that's an analog computer. So that doesn't, that in terms of Turing completeness, it doesn't, it does, there's, just doesn't meet. So instead of, when talking about the history of computers, I prefer to instead talk about the history of computing. Hmm. And in, in a certain sense, you can say it started with numbers and arithmetic. But there are certain things in this history that were very important to, to that facilitated computation in various ways. One was the, the, the uh, Indo-Arabic number system, which mm. had the zero, and mm. that made uh, lots of things easier, including multiplication. The invention of logarithms in this early 17th century was extremely important for, for astronomers such as uh, Johannes Kepler, who was doing a lot of calculations and a lot of multiplications, and suddenly there's this tool called logarithms that simplify multiplications. It was a revelation. And there was a certain adding machine, the abacus you can throw in there. And then after logarithms, there were slide rules, which basically do, do use logarithms to do multiplications. So there are a lot of, of, of devices in this history that, that facilitate computing. And so there's, there's pretty much a continuity and then in the first digital computers were built in the 1930s. And from there, there's just a, it's just been a history of getting smaller and faster and cheaper. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about the uh, the history of computers, because it goes back, I think, a lot further than most people realize. You discussed a couple of things in there. But when and where really did it all start? Like when did the modern maybe thought about a, of what a computer is today really get its start? And uh, what, were, what are some of maybe the key technological innovations that helped to bring those initial ideas from what we to what we think of computers as today? Interestingly, the, the first digital computers, what we would call digital computers, were built in the 1930s. There are a couple different people around the world who kind of had the, the same idea at the same time. And many of the early ones were built with telegraph relays. Mm. Actually, the relays were, were originally invented for the, the use in the telegraph, and then they were used in the telephone system. And these are relays are very simple devices that uh, have electromagnets. And when you apply a current to the electromagnet, it clicks down a piece of metal and a circuit forms so it can... Uh, it's basically a switch that can be turned on and off by electricity or another switch. And then you start wiring these together and you can create circuits that perform logic or do arithmetic. And this is pretty much the gist of the first mm. <laughs> hundred or so pages of, of uh, code. <laughs> but why it took so long for that to happen is is to me a mystery because... Boolean algebra was invented back in the middle of the 19th century, and Charles Babbage, the English mathematician who, who uh, designed but never was able to build what's considered now to be the first digital computer, but his, his digital computer worked with, with gears and wheels and, mm. and stuff. And Babbage knew of Boole's work, so somebody could have put these two things together and seen how... Uh, the telegraph relays could implement Boolean logic, but apparently nobody figured that out until the 1930s. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Well, and, and there were, you know, World War II, it, the Enigma, the cracking of the Enigma had the, the yeah. machine that they built for that was pretty amazing given the time. Yeah, yeah. That wasn't a general purpose computer, though. It was right. uh, a lot of a lot of machines in the early days were made for specific purposes. Right. Yeah. And in fact, some of the some of the early theorists about about computers didn't realize that there could be such a thing as a general purpose digital computer that you could use the same computer for for calculating uh, rocket orbits and and doing your taxes. It was just it wasn't quite clear to people, but that's where we that's where we've come. So. To make something general purpose, it, we need the concept of software. We need the idea to program a computer. So when did we invent software? Like what's some of that early code look like? And uh, you know, what were the major evolutionary milestones of what we now can, you know, how we control and program computers? Yeah, well, software seems to have been invented again by Charles Babbage. And one of the things that he was influenced by was a silk weaving loom 
that had been invented by, can't remember his first name, Jacquard, in around the year 1800 in France. And originally when they were weaving patterns in silk, they had boys sitting on top of the loom pulling up the strings and stuff to, to get the pattern right. And he replaced that with a mechanism that was uh, triggered by holes punched in cardboard. And so that influenced also in the early, late 19th century, the system of taking the census devised by Hollerith, where hmm. code, people's uh, characteristics would be punched in, in holes in cards. These are called Hollerith cards that eventually evolved into IBM cards. Yeah. So Babbage, and this was in the 1830s, was familiar with the Jacquard loom. And so he figured that his computer could be run from holes punched in cardboard. That the holes would correspond to numbers and the holes would correspond to different operations. And the first actual computer program that we know of in print was uh, created by Ada Lovelace, who was translating an Italian article about Babbage's machines into English and adding her own commentary and uh, showed this this program. And uh, that's from 1840-something. In Atlan Turing's paper in the 1930s, you can see a computer programs that, that do certain things. And then for each of the computers built in the uh, 1830s, there were specific ways to program them. Conrad Zuza, who, who built a early digital computer in his parents' living room in Berlin, used old 35-millimeter movie film huh. and punched holes in oh, that wow. to, to trigger the computer. So a lot of it was uh, used that form of storing information of, of uh, paper tapes or, or the 35-millimeter the film. Eventually, they figured out that it was it would be best to event, put all the codes into memory along with the, everything else mm-hmm. so that it could run, run quite fast. But that's something that people probably don't think about is, you know, like memory wasn't always part of I mean, we think of it uh, as part and parcel of any computer today, but it was not always part of the computer. It was it was added uh, later. Was, yeah, memory and memory. There is uh, some early attempts to do memory were really bizarre. Because if you're, if you're trying to store, you can use these telegraph relays, as I show in the book, as I show in code, you can use these telegraph relays to, to store information. Um, you wire them up into, into circuits called flip-flops, and they can store bits of information. But in order to store anything in something significantly large, you need a lot of them. It's just, mm-hmm. it's just un, 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 <laughs> uh, it just gets to be unrealistic. So there were various techniques to store stuff in, in to store information. Uh, one was called delay line mercury, and you'd have these tubes of mercury, and you you would be able to store a bit from one end of the tube by ta- by a mechanism that tapped it and create little pulses throughout the huh. mercury, which would be picked up at the other end and then circulated bit back around so that it can be continually stored there. Huh. And uh, but. That was used for a while, and uh, didn't know that. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Look up delay line mercury, delay line mercury storage, something like that in in Wikipedia. It'll wow. I'll have to. Yeah, I was not aware of that. Interesting. The other thing that came to my mind as you're talking about this is player pianos and uh, music boxes. I mean, it's basically the same kind of thing. Yeah, the the player piano. I know a lot of people think of the player piano. The player piano is, was actually not invented until the late 1800s. It was quite a bit after the Chicard loom had, had established this idea of, of using cardboard with holes punched in it. Music boxes go back further. Prior to the Chicard loom, there were, particularly from French inventors, making these automata of these dolls that would move and do certain things. And uh, um, there was one that could could hold a pen and, and write something. And these were all internally programmed with a lot of complex mechanism and uh, something that would be akin to a computer program maybe yeah right so it's this the history of this i know people prefer histories where there's just one guy who has this amazing idea (laughs) and the thing it's there you know and that is 
That is extremely rare, even even with something like the light bulb. And uh, Americans think that Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Well, it's a little more complex than that. And if you ask your English friends who invented the light bulb, they will not <laughs> tell you that Edison did it. The, the, one, the one invention that Edison made completely out of thin air, apparently, was, was uh, the phonograph. Mm. There was no precedent for that. And interestingly, it did not catch on at first. It was like an invention. It was one of those inventions that was too early for its time. Well, and that, in a sense, was another form of storage, right? It was an analog yeah. form of storage. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very interesting. All right. So one of, the, one of the key themes in your book is the concept of codes and coming up with efficient ways to transfer information, you know, depending on the medium and depending on the capability mm-hmm. of the participants. Uh, so what does it mean to encode and decode something? And how does learning about codes help us understand computers and, you know, communications in general? Okay. Um, Big topic, well, I know. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. Well, I, I think we, that we use a lot of codes naturally. I, the, 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 uh, the spoken word is a form of code. It's, you can divide it up into, uh, into little phonemes and that, that comprise words. And, but it's something that we learn naturally when we're uh, uh, infants and, and develop eventually. But yes, there are various ways that language has been translated into codes for uh, specific purposes. Uh, what I start with in the book is Morse code, mm-hmm. which I think uh, people might be vaguely familiar with. Um, if you're ever into Boy Scouts, you might, might be more familiar with it. I like the way you brought it up, though. You did bring it up like, let's talk about Morse code. You said like, okay, you and your buddy yeah. are, are live, yeah. across, <laughs> live across from each other and you can see each other's windows and it's, ba- it's after bedtime and your parents want you to go to sleep. But of course, your kids, you're not going to do that. That's why I love the book so much is the, way, is the way you bring these things home and the concepts the way. So like kind of bring it. Talk to us about how you came to that idea, like how you explained it that way. Yeah, I, I don't know. The thing is that the, the, between the time that I had the idea for this book and the time I started writing it, uh, about 10 years elapsed. So so I had a lot of time <laughs> for it to kick around in my head. Mm. And um, I, I don't know exactly how it was that I came upon some of these connections, but it, it's, I was quite happy with the way the connections worked. Yeah, at the beginning, I described... And, and this might be common. To, this might be something that people have experienced themselves. They figure, oh, let's let's communicate by flashlights at night. And, oh, it's so easy. You just move the flashlight in the form of letters. You, you mark out letters with the flashlight, and you find out that doesn't work. <laughs> and then you, you need to do it more in a more sophisticated way. And fortunately, it's already been invented. It's Morse code. <laughs> and you can turn the, the flashlight on and off. But then the flashlight becomes an interesting kind of show and tell for how electricity works in a very simple way. And then taking the flashlight apart and, and uh, putting wires in there and making it longer so that you can turn a switch on at one end and a light bulb uh, flashes at the other end and you can go around corners and stuff. And this was how the, the early telegraph worked, except it didn't work with light bulbs because the light bulb wasn't invented at the time. But what was invented was... Um, electromagnets. And so uh, this was the way, a way for a, a switch to be turned on at one location. Uh, electricity goes through the wires, triggers an electromagnet at the other location. It clicks down a little bar, and so you, you're able to communicate. But the other connection there is that if you're stringing up a telegraph over long distances, the resistance of the wire gets such that you don't have any electricity left at the uh, mm. end. And so you have to have relay stations. And what these relay stations are is, is a, a device called a relay, which is simply an electromagnet that is turned on by another, not by a switch, but by another circuit. And these relays can then be used to start building a computer. How, how I connected this all up at the beginning, I don't know, but it, it's, it came together in a satisfying way, in a way that, that, that I liked. Back to the coding part, there's so many parts of our lives that, that 
that it entail encoding and decoding of some sort. We don't think <clears> of it in that terms because we've gotten used to it, but you break it down so nicely in the book. And and it all depends on, again, like, you know, what are the capabilities of the of the participants? What are the, what medium do you have at your disposal? Is it electricity? Is it air? Is it water? <laughs> you know, it depends yeah. on, on what you're doing. And I think it was just fascinating the way that, the way you kind of broke that down and explained how important that stuff is in all parts of modern life. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I think one of the most amazing aspects of uh, the history of computers is the rate at which processing capabilities have increased over time. Uh, you know, so how, how is it that we compare, you know, the quote unquote power of two different computers? And how, how have we measured progress over time? There are um, like standard measurements of, of how fast computers could do. Right. Flops. Uh, calculation. The, uh, floating yeah. Floating upward. Yeah. Pet, metaflops and petaflops. Yeah. Yes. Well, let's talk about Moore's Law yeah. because, because Moore's Law, yeah. when we started getting into, particularly when we started going from relays and, and whatever to transistors. Yeah, it went from relays to vacuum tubes mm, yep. to transistors, then to integrated circuits, where you can put basically the transistors on a little piece of, of silicon. Right. And then Gordon Moore came up with the what is now infamous Moore's Law. So talk to that a little bit, because that, that yeah. actually has proven remarkably I, accurate see, over the years. Gordon Moore, this was back in 1965, and he was looking at the past six years, and he saw that the uh, the number of transistors that could fit on a single chip had doubled every year. And he predicted this trend would continue. And it hasn't really. It's, it's slowed off in, in the past few years. But it has, I mean, manifested itself in our in our cell phones most obviously one of the comparisons i used to make in my class and i've since given up on this because i think they've you can't really find like you can't look up and say you know what is how many teraflops or gigaflops or whatever is there on an iphone 14 but at one point there was like the iphone 6 um had somebody had gone to the trouble of figuring out what the processing power was and it turned out the iphone 6 was like I might get this wrong, like 20 times more powerful than IBM's Deep Blue, which was back in the day, <laughs> you know, the first computer to beat Kasparov, you know, in chess, right? Right. You know, so just the, the amount of how we've gone from these massive mainframe computers down to these little tiny things that have even more power is just fascinating to me. Yeah. And people don't really, I'm not sure they they actually shop on, on how fast the iPhone, how right. fast the, the cell phones are. If it streams video successfully, then it's fine. People run into more problems with, you know, lack of Wi-Fi stations or Wi-Fi yeah. hubs or, or cell phone stations more than the actual processing of the phone itself. It's yeah. the uh, getting stuff into and out of the phone that's uh, really the slow part. Right. We're actually becoming input-output bound on a lot of these things, yeah. either either network speeds or it used to be hard drive speeds. You know, the, the, you could have an extremely fast computer, but if it couldn't write to the hard drive or read from the hard drive fast enough, it would slow down. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's it's funny that we, we obsess so much about how fast a processor is when in, in, in modern day, it's, it's almost useless. It's fast enough. <laughs> you know, yeah. to do just about anything we want to do on a daily basis. Back in the day, if you wanted to see like one photograph on a computer screen, mm -hmm. it, it might take like a minute <laughs> for right. it to be to be rendered on the on the screen. And you would painstakingly um, watch it yeah, scan yeah, like the, line yeah. by line. And so at that time, the idea of watching a movie on a computer screen was just inconceivable. Yeah. Uh, early on in, in computer animation, there were lots of tricks that were used to avoid redrawing a lot. If something moved against the background, you could draw it, erase it, and then redraw it in a different position. And now nobody cares. In computer animation, the whole screen is just refreshed 60 times a, a, minute, a right. second. But that's actually a, that's actually an excellent analogy because back in the day when when Disney especially were really cranking out you know animated films left and right they had to optimize that stuff and for efficiency they oh, yeah. did exactly what you're talking about they they'd reuse backgrounds actually if you look at multiple Disney movies you'll see similar uh, backgrounds and similar movements from characters it's because they reuse the animation and mm. so it's kind of like what we do with JPEG images today like the the technology behind a JPEG especially or a, a motion JPEG or a, a, a where it's actually doing video is from frame to frame, find the parts that change and just worry about changing the coding of that. And all the rest of it, you can say it's the same as it was last time. Right, so, that, you right. know, so that from frame to frame, you save a lot of energy, a lot of uh, store data storage. It's the same concept. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. So 
I love the way in your book, and we've talked about this, I hinted at it a little bit, the way you kind of like take time to painstakingly build up these concepts from very like true first principles, like, you know, like we were saying from relays and to transistors and switches to complex logic circuits. It, it reminded me a lot of what I learned at as, you know, as a double E going at Purdue, but in, in, a, in a much better way, much more accessible fashion. How long, how did it long to take you to figure out how to tell that story, you know, of these building blocks of increased complexity? And what was the hardest part? Like, what was the hardest, what did you find the hardest to explain in the book? Yeah, interesting thoughts. Um, of course, you're going back to when I was writing originally writing this in yeah. the uh, in the late '90s. But I think part of what you say painstakingly <laughs> explained is I like to write. <laughs> I like to go into detail in writing. I, I probably am. My writing is a little more verbose than other people's writing, but I do have a lot of patience. Yeah. And like I said, this book, I could not have written this book the first, right after I got the idea for it. I could not have done it. I had to let it bang around in my head yeah. for a, a decade until I, I, I saw how, what the progress would be. Because one of the things that I learned when writing the books, the programming tutorials, my first book was called Programming Windows and it was about writing Windows 2.0 applications, a version of Windows that a lot of people didn't even see. Uh, most people came to Windows in 3.0, 3.1, and then later. But one of the things I re realized in, write in writing a tutorial is that the most important thing is to get the order right. Mm -hmm. You never want to say, oh, I'm going to explain this more in chapter six, but right now you just got to believe me that this is so. <laughs> um, uh, you never want to make forward references like that. Mm -hmm. So when writing those programming tutorials, and it was different for every environment, every programming environment that I tackled, because later wrote program, uh, programming tutorials on OS2 and then Windows Forms and the Windows Presentation Foundation and later uh, Xamarin Forms. They're all different. They're all slightly different. And they all require a different order of presentation that's best suited for them. And to do that, I would, I would try to break down all the material into chapters and write down what, for each chapter what I was going to cover and what needed to be covered before then. And I'd put these on index cards. And then I'd you know, lay them out on the floor and order them in a way that goes logically from the beginning to end and sometimes weird things happen there was one book that i was writing where it, it became really obvious to me that i would have to discuss colors and brushes in the first chapter hmm. uh, <laughs> or the second chapter somewhere early on yeah and and one of the reviews on on, on amazon said Color, color and brushes are stuff that you add to a program after it's done. You don't need them right at the beginning. Well, it turned, it turned out that it was necessary to, to discuss, to describe certain concepts that later became important. But so, yeah, getting stuff in the proper order was, was really important. And I actually reordered some of the chapters in code. If you look at the table of contents between the two editions, hmm. you will see some changes one of the things that I brought up earlier in the book was the concept of the byte. Mm -hmm. It was just, in the first edition, for some reason, I wanted to delay the byte until much later. I didn't think it was necessary, but it turned out it was, it was convenient or to get it to establish what a byte was early mm -hmm. on. It's very simple. So, but eh, things like that. Well, I, you know, and I don't want to make it sound pejorative. I, mean, I think it's actually elegant and, and obviously the attention to detail is amazing. It, it, the way you actually build it up from first principles is is wonderful. And, and so, I mean, going all the way back and, and seeing, I mean, while I was personally as an electrical engineer and a, somebody who just enjoys computer history, was aware of all these things kind of myself, actually seeing it laid out in that order uh, and and making the, the the conclusions and saying, well, once you have this, then you have this, and now you have this building block, and you've got this building block. Well, what happens if you take those two things, you put them together? What can you make with those? The the increasing complexity, and you can see how over time, and if you and you can trace that through our history with computers, yeah, yeah, I could see where we made those jumps, and we we made those logical steps where we can take these building blocks and put them together to more to make more complicated things. And I'd, so I, I thought that was just great the way you laid that out in the book. 
Thank you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, was, it was hard work. <laughs> I, yeah, I, yes, I can see that. All right. So now bringing this back to maybe the more general topic of, of what I normally cover on this podcast, and I realize it's not the focus of your book, but can we talk a little bit about, you know, what understanding computers and coding and all these things can teach us about privacy and security? Because I think understanding codes and understanding how computers work can give you an, you know, can help you understand how they can be subverted and how they can mm. be hacked. And mm. so I, I was curious, has, how do you think that maybe understanding computers and codes might help us better protect ourselves or better understand the need to protect ourselves in terms of uh, security and maybe even privacy for like encryption? Yes. Most people, if they're familiar with programming at all, are familiar with high-level languages. And high-level languages have, uh, you can still write a program that, that doesn't work in high-level languages. Of course, most of them don't work at first. Right. But it's very hard. It's, it's harder to break something in a high-level language. It's harder to write a program that writes garbage to your screen, for example. But that is very common with assembly language. Mm. And I, I, because I'm building a computer from scratch, basically, and, and I, I go into what machine code is and what assembly language is, and you can see just by the way that machine code is implemented that there are really no safeguards, that it is very easy to write a program that just starts executing random bytes, which might have unpredictable results. So I think that when people understand that, they, they can see that at the very core, the bulletproofing has to come from outside the computer. The bulletproofing has to come from software rather than the computer hardware. Yeah, that's an excellent point, actually. And that's something that the book, I think, that can illustrate is that the, when you look at the lowest level coding, it is, it's wide open. You can shoot yourself in the foot very, very easily because it's very powerful and it, it doesn't have any safeguards or guardrails on it that a lot of modern languages do. And that's one of the things that, as a software programmer, that has evolved in my, just in my career, is the higher level languages putting on the, the child protective surfaces, putting on the nerf corners on the, on the sharp edges and, you know, preventing yourself from shooting yourself in the foot and, and making it harder to do those things like memory, you know, memory management, it's very simple and garbage collection and all those kind of things are in high level languages uh, that if you didn't understand what was really going on underneath the covers, you wouldn't understand why that's important, but yeah. Yeah. A lot of the early programs written for the IBM PC and, and for the Mac were in, in C and, uh, C is for those programmers who love it. Um, is it's a wonderful <laughs> language. Uh, I spent a lot of time in C, but it is. Uh, if you don't know what you're doing, it's a very dangerous language, yes. and uh, you can you can write programs that that not only don't work but just start messing around with the rest of the machine. <laughs> It was also important for operating systems mm. to start protecting memory and, yep. and using. There are some facilities of, of the processors as the processor became more more sophisticated to protect areas of memory, but it's it's still tricky. And and what I still come back to Alan Turing. Um, one of my other books is called The Annotated Turing. If somebody wants to read Alan Turing's original paper on computability, mm -hmm. but we can't ever be sure that our programs are running correctly. <laughs> that is a profound statement and it's yeah it's a very historically significant statement to be to to make and prove yeah all right so last question for you before we go and so you know given how computers have grown from mechanical machines that filled entire rooms you know to billions of transistors on a chip the size of a postage stamp uh what in your mind what's the future of computing technology look like what's your book going to look like when you rewrite it in, in another <laughs> 20 years from now <laughs> that is, um, boy, I hope I'm still alive. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, there has been work in quantum computing hmm. recently. I, if I were, if I were 20 years younger, I might take a shot at writing a book about quantum computing. It would be the quantum computing version of code or something like that. I will leave that to younger writers. Um, oh, you mentioned in the book about the world brain. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. Oh boy. The world brain was a concept invented by H.G. Wells. Hmm. We all know H.G. Wells. He wrote um, Time Machine and The mm -hmm. Invisible Man and War of the Worlds. And yeah. he was, uh, those were rather early in his career. And by the 1930s, he had become a, a public intellectual. 
and he gave a series of lectures on something that he considered very important to the to the uh, to the world, and which were later collected in a book called The World Brain. And his idea was very simple. He wanted an encyclopedia that would not only accumulate all the world's current knowledge, but it would be continually updated, and it would provide the basis of a common sense of reality for the entire world. And he was writing in very precarious times. Uh, It was just 20 years after the Great War had ended, a war that was devastating to Europe, an entire generation of, of, of Englishmen and Germans and French, and yet it was in the mid-30s, and there, things were looking extremely ominous. Hmm. And he thought that the, the idea of putting this common sense of reality into a set of encyclopedias was extraordinarily important. He was certainly an optimist in this regard, certainly a utopianist, but this idea of the world brain was very influential to some earlier de- early developers of the internet. And in a sense, the internet is, on the whole, an extremely sloppy implementation of the world brain. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly reflects the minds, the brains of, of many people around the world, but in a very sloppy way. There are certain segments of the internet that are closer to H.G. Wells' Wikipedia, uh, maybe, concept. Yeah. Wikipedia is the most obvious one. Yeah. You know, I, 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 under, I love Wikipedia. I understand, and I'm, compl- I'm probably more familiar than most people with the, the flaws of Wikipedia, um, because I sometimes use it to look up things that I know something about, and I see a lot of mm. uh, uh, errors and... and uh, if I, if I had infinite amount of time, I would go in there and fix them myself, but I don't do that. But it is because it has, has been implemented with an overall philosophy of to keep it honest and to reflect prevalent science and other concepts that it has been quite successful in becoming a, a excellent source of information. And I use it mostly just to get dates right. You know, <laughs> right, yeah. if you want to know, if you want to know when the uh, 8086 microprocessor went on sale, you know, you can find that out or when the IBM PCAT became available. That's all that stuff. So easy. Um, and there's a lot of information about programming languages and stuff like that. That was very useful. In in with the first edition of the book, I accumulated a, a bunch of reference material, and later wrote a, a bibliography that was online about hmm. I don't know about ten, six, eight, ten books for each chapter. You can still find this bibliography if you search <laughs> enough on my website. It's it's um, yeah, there is a path to, search, <laughs> to find it, but. I discovered I didn't need to do that with the second edition. First of all, I had done a lot of the, the basic research and, and it was already there. But a lot of the stuff that I needed to, to know was available either in Wikipedia or elsewhere online with simple searches. And entire books and stuff, if, if you need a, uh, a manual for the Intel 8080 processor, which forms a considerable part of this uh, new edition of code, you can find that online fairly easily. So the internet and Wikipedia in particular became my sole source of reference for this second edition. (laughs) Maybe that's admitting a little too much, but... (laughs) (laughs) That's the world we live in today, I think. I think a lot of people, you know, let's say a lot of sticklers will say, well, you can't source, you know, you're, you're, the source for your thing can't be Wikipedia. And it's like, really? Well, you know, if you, if you of course, you look at Wikipedia, they're sourced as well. So you could usually get yeah. to the what, where it's sourced it from. But it, there's a lot of great knowledge there. I've been doing some like rudimentary tech reads. A friend of mine is writing a book. Of, I won't be too specific. He's writing a book that involves some math concepts. 
And if he wants to reference a, 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 a math theorem, it's just so easy doing it through Wikipedia. You know, the, for example, um, if you have a triangle, you can find the cosine of, the, of any of the three angles based on a formula of the other three sides. It's called the law of cosines, and it's useful. And that's just a Wikipedia article. You know, that's the easiest way to reference the law of yep. cosines. And I other, use it all lots the time. of other stuff too. Yeah. I yeah. refer it whenever I write my blog articles or whatever, I refer, I refer people to stuff like that all yeah. the time. What's important too is that Wikipedia articles often have a bibliography themselves. Yes. So if you really want to go to real books and real magazine articles, it's an easy step from there. Absolutely. All right. So wrapping up, what what's what's next on the on the horizon for you? What are you what are you working on now? There are uh, several books on the prehistory of computing that I'd like to write. Hmm. Um, whether I'm going to finish all these or not, I don't know. But the one that I'm kind of focused on for the near future is a book about Charles Babbage. Mm-hmm. But it's about a fairly narrow part of Babbage's career. It's about a book that he wrote in, in the uh, 1830s on natural theology, hmm. which, <laughs> which is the use of uh, rational thinking and appearances of nature to prove the existence of God. Oh, wow. And... Uh, Babbage was a basically, he discussed his computing machine in more detail than anywhere else in this, in this little book and used it to try to prove the existence of miracles. Wow. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a historical curiosity, but yeah. it brings in a lot of other interesting things as well. And I get to talk about Charles Babbage and uh, he, part of this book is, is in refutation of, of a famous essay by the philosopher David Hume on miracles. David Hume thought that miracles were impossible. And because of it, you would need... I'm going into much too much detail. <laughs> I know this. <laughs> well, I can tell you're passionate about it. <laughs> so so that was, that's, that's, that's one book. The other one that would come next would be a book com- called Computer of the Tides, which is about a tide-predicting machine that Lord Kelvin, otherwise known as William Thompson, created in the Yeah, 1860s. you mentioned that in your book, yeah. Yeah, and this, if people are interested in that, there are two videos on my website. Hmm. My website is charlespetzel.com, very simple. There are two videos on my website, one about the tide-predicting machine and the other about uh, Vannevar Bush's Differential analyzer, which is the machine that solved differential equations. So these are two examples of analog computers um, that would both be discussed in this the other book, Computer of the Tide. So those are two books that I want to write. Another one is on logarithms hmm. and how partially this is it's not only a historical about how logarithms were invented and how useful they were particularly to early astronomers who were doing a lot of multiplications, but how they represent our perception of the real world. A lot of scales are logarithmic. Our hearing decibels is logarithmic. Mm -hmm. Earthquakes, the Richter scale is logarithmic. Our money is logarithmic. (laughs) We don't have you know, $35 bills and $36 bills and $37 bills. Right. We go $1, $2, $5, 10 20 100 Right. <laughs> um, and with the, the, the coinage as well. So we, we perceive a lot of things in, in terms of logarithms, but because we no longer need logarithms or slide rules to do basic calculations, we'd use a calculator instead. We've kind of lost that connection. And so it's something that I'd like to discuss. Well, I look forward um, to those books. Uh, <laughs> there's a fourth. There's a fourth one too. <laughs> oh, okay. The fourth one would be on the Chicard loom, but I can't write that book because I need to learn French, and <laughs> it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Um, I'm too old to learn French. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Charles, so much for coming on the show, okay. and, and I really enjoyed that discussion. No problem. I enjoyed it. Big thank you again to Charles for coming on the show. I thoroughly enjoyed that. I got a little extra bonus content for my patrons. You guys will be hearing that on Thursday, as usual, with the private podcast for patrons. 
I am still reading the book code myself and I'm very much enjoying it. And then I really am looking forward to reading that annotated Turing because while I think it would be interesting to read that paper directly, it'd be a lot better to have like the Cliff Notes version where somebody's walking it through line by line and explaining what it means and giving the significance today of that paper. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm really kind of geeking out looking forward to that one too. The second edition of Code is on sale now. It came out uh, very recently, but you can get it on Amazon or all the usual outlets. Of course, I've got links in the show notes to take you to Charles' website and some of the things that he mentioned, the videos that he mentioned. His other book, The Annotated Turing, I've got a link to that. Uh, I've also got some Wikipedia articles, because we love Wikipedia, uh, on Alan Turing and Ada Lovelace. And that delay line mercury storage uh, thing you talked about, too. So, all in the show notes. Check those out if you are interested. All right, so I promised you I'd tell you... <laughs> well, I promised you I'd rant about Google. And uh, I'm going to rant. So, last week I had an article that I read to you in the new show about somebody who had exposed themselves via airdrop, you know, cyber flashing on a Southwest airlines flight. And, you know, we talked about that. Well, every, you know, I post my audio podcasts to Facebook and YouTube every week. And I, I do that by creating a videogram. So it's a kind of a solid picture of the podcast with the title on top. And then a little waveform at the bottom that moves as I speak. And it go, you know, goes along with the audio kind of turns the, audio into a video, sort of. Anyway, I post that on YouTube every week. So I posted this as I normally do with the show notes and the links to the articles. And I almost immediately get an email from YouTube. Uh, and, and, and this is what it says. Our team has reviewed your content. And unfortunately, we think it violates our sex and nudity policy. We've removed the following content from YouTube. And they sh they show the URL that got me in trouble. And this is from, you know, it was Device Magazine. It was the article about the person who exposed themselves. And the title of the article was Southwest TikTok Video Pilot Airdropped Nudes. And so because the URL contained the word nudes, I was rejected. But it's like worse. It's worse. Like, listen to what else, what else they tell me. We know this might be disappointing, but it's important to us that YouTube is a safe place for all. If content breaks our rules, we remove it. If you think we've made a mistake, you can appeal and we'll take another look. If an external site you link to contains nudity, pornography, or other sexually provocative content, it's not allowed on YouTube. YouTube reviews content on a case-by-case -case basis and will make limited exceptions for appropriate educational, documentary, artistic, and scientific contexts. In such cases, we may apply an age restriction so that only viewers of certain age can view the content. Uh, because it's your first time, this is just a warning. If it happens again, your channel will get a strike and you won't be able to do things like upload, post, or live stream for one week. We want to help you to stay on YouTube. So please make sure you understand the community guidelines and the strikes basics and review your content with all our policies in mind. If after reviewing your content, you think we made a mistake, let us know. You can appeal this decision here. And when I click on here, the link fails. So I, could, I couldn't even appeal it. Oh, God. I tell, you know what? I'll tell you what. If, if YouTube ever blocks me over again over something like this, I'll just quit. I, I'm sorry. That's just, that's just BS, especially if, if I can't even appeal it. And, and, and for what we've seen, like last week, we also talked about the guy who uploaded nude photos of his kid to his doctor's website. But unfortunately, that also meant copying those pictures to the cloud, you know, Android uh, the Android cloud storage, whatever that is. And Google picked up on those and said he might be a child, child molester and cancel all his accounts. And when he appealed, they would give him back. <sighs> so frustrating. All right. Anyway, there's a, there it is. There's my rant. All right. So I said, I'd also talk about this, uh, steganography thing. So steganography is hiding something in plain sight. It's a really fascinating topic. If you're interested at all, there is a link in the show notes you can check out uh, on Wikipedia. But I actually, and this is something else I did with my patrons, I, I have a thing called Merlin's Musings that I do for my top patrons. It's a, it's a private podcast where I just kind of go off on some technical topics. And the one I just recently did actually was steganography. And I can't believe I didn't think to mention this at the time. So uh, I'll, I'll mention it here for you guys. My high school has kind of this old style concrete facade, brick and concrete. And I mean, it's an old, it's an old high school. It's been around for a while, but there's a pattern all around on the concrete faces. And I never paid any attention to it. I just figured it was, you know, just some weird seventies design pattern thing. And, uh, turns out I didn't find this till after I graduated. 
It turns out it's it's actually Morse code. And so it's dots and dashes just repeated all over the face of the, the school and these parts of the face of the school that were they're concrete. And if you look at it, it's the name of the high school repeated over and over in Morse code. And uh, I, I forget how I found that out. But when I looked it up and took a picture of it and looked it up, sure enough, that's what it was. And so that is, I, I guess you would call that steganography. It is certainly hiding in plain sight. I didn't pay any attention to it in the four years that I was there, but it was right there the whole time. Now, uh, next week, like I said, uh, we're going to have another interview next week. I know that's not what I normally do. I know I normally would have a new show next week, but for a couple different reasons, uh, I'm shifting the schedule by one week. So we're going to have two interviews back to back, and then we'll go back to alternating news and interview shows. And for one reason, my 300th episode will be a big interview episode. So I want to make those line up. So now basically the interviews will be on the even numbered shows again. It was that way for a long time and somewhere I got off kilter. Now I'm just getting it back. So anyway, that is why next week will also be another interview. Now, originally, I think maybe said it might be Doug Lovin next week. I have that one coming up, but because the interview I just did was on something that's more topical, something that's more recent, I want to kind of put that ahead in the queue. So next week you'll be hearing an interview about tornado cash. And if you didn't catch that article or know what I'm talking about, that more than likely you you have no interest in cryptocurrency. However, this company slash program slash software is used to try to make cryptocurrency transactions more private. So I interviewed Kurt Opsahl from the EFF about this, and they have some very interesting points to make about free speech and how tools such as this can be used for good or ill, but we need to protect it being used for, for good things. So anyway, because that's kind of topical, I'm going to push that ahead of the queue, and we'll do that as our interview for next week. All right, everybody, that'll do it for this week. Uh, again, stay tuned. Uh, I will be announcing my new mailbag thing where I ask you guys to send me questions, and I will answer them on the air. That will be coming up soon, and I will have incentives for you to do so. We're counting down to episode 300. That's coming up in 10 weeks. So stay tuned, everybody. Subscribe if you haven't. Give me a nice review on Amazon for the book or on Apple Podcasts for the podcast. Those really, really do help. And until next week, as always, stay safe out there, everybody, and don't get caught with your drawbridge down.